This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway and Kevin DeYoung's new book, The Biggest Story Bible Storybook. Beginning in Genesis and ending with Revelation, DeYoung retells the unified story of Scripture through 104 easy-to-read Bible stories. Featuring captivating artwork by award-winning artist Don Clark, this book is perfect for families to read together. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org to find out how you can get 30% off. For better or worse, much of our lives are now lived online. As believers, we have to ask ourselves, is the internet shaping us or are we shaping it? At TGC, our aim is to amplify the gospel online by providing practical support to believers through articles, podcasts, and videos. These gospel-centered resources are free to you because of our generous community of financial supporters. Would you consider becoming a TGC partner, helping us continue to provide free resources that amplify the gospel online? To make a financial gift, visit tgc.org give. That's tgc.org give. And now for today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a keynote message from K.A. Ellis called Whose Story Will You Follow? This message was originally delivered at TGC's 2021 Women's Conference. story are you following? Whose story are you following? If you believe the Bible, then there is an ancient and true story recorded from Genesis to Revelation, and it goes like this. God has created and is keeping a people for himself, a people who will run the Christian race well for his purposes, no matter what circumstances surround them. And the Bible lays out a unique narrative. A good and loving God wired human beings to worship him, to enjoy a harmony and a relationship with him and with fellow humans and with the rest of creation. And if you believe the Bible, then you also believe that there are false stories and they have the power to degrade people, 
to the image of the false god they promote. And both stories, the ancient story and the false stories, offer a path to change, setting out life goals and priorities and communities built on those things with purpose and mission. And these practices and habits and systems either change people into the image of the creator, leading to transformation and life and shalom and spiritual freedom and whole identity, or they change people into the images of cultural gods following different stories. James is inviting us to go underneath our words and our intentions of our hearts, to reflect on which story we follow as our life-giving, life-defining priority. James wants us to be sure which story we're following, because our habits and our ethics and our actions are going to be informed by that story. And James knows we become what we worship. We use its language, we sell and read and write its books, and in doing so, if we're following a false story, we'll tell its stories and its lies. Or we tell the ancient story, proclaiming God's goodness until he comes and we tell his truth. So James is writing to a people who, on one hand, lived more closely to the ancient story and also, at the same time, to those who were living far from it, all in the same little community, the household of God, the body of faith. And he's writing to a people living under persecution who had watched brother Stephen, be stoned to death. They buried his body. They feared Saul, whose anti-Christian rampage brought death and destruction to their region, and he was dragging them off to prison and scattering them hither and yon, breaking up families and killing people. And this group also, in addition to persecution, had joy. And they took that joy and they preached the word of God all in the midst of their suffering. Read Acts 8, 1 through 8. These were the people of what is known as the great persecution. These are the people James is writing to. Listen this weekend to James's voice throughout his letter and it's interesting how much James sounds like his brother, the Lord he serves, Yeshua HaMashiach. James sounds like his brother Jesus because he walked with him all his life. He lives in the story his brother set in motion at the creation of the world. James sounds like the one he worships. And you can hear how his time with Jesus drips all over this book. He echoes his brother all over these passages. In your free time, 
Sometime this weekend, look at the Sermon on the Mount and compare as you listen to James. In fact, the more you read the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James, the more these parallels start to emerge. And James sounds like Jesus because he was with Jesus. Oh, don't you want that to be said of you? You sound like the Savior because you spent time with him, because you're the people of his story and no one else's. My mama used to, y'all, I was bad when I was growing up. I really was. My mama used to tell me before I left the house to go out wilding, she used to say, don't just remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Who we worship defines who we are and marks us as God's set-apart people. The people of God who have had the most impact on this beautiful line throughout redemptive history, kept and sustained by God's promise to keep a people to himself. Those who've made a dent in eternity are not defined by other stories or by man-made temporal categories. The ones who follow closely to the ancient story, like James, and distinguish themselves as a part of it, these are the ones who remembered in God's categories steadfast, wise, perfect, complete, a whole new set of names. In this passage, James 1, the end, and James 2, the beginning, James isn't giving us a list of moralistic do's and don'ts. What he's giving this community and to us are the qualities that are needed in times of trial against the church. And we'll cheat ourselves if we reduce the book of James to a book about moral perfection. This is a book about character. A book about who you worship, whose house you live in. Look at Proverbs 7, 8, and 9. Are you going to live in wisdom's house unto life or folly's house unto destruction? And do you sound like the one you worship? So first, James focuses inward on the individual expression. He's going after the people first before he hits the community. And he's going to ask them a question. Does your say match your due. If we say we follow Christ, but our actions are not lined up with following him, with his ancient story, his purposes, his character, his mission, we're self-deceived. Say ought to match do, the old you people used to say. We teach children this in our shorter catechism. The Westminster Confession says, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach that man is, what man is to believe concerning God, that's just say, And what duty God requires of man, that's your due. Say and do. Epistemology and ethics. Two sides of the same zipper. Your ethics, how we obey God, the things we do, and our epistemology, what we say we know about God, they should match. So the next time you zip up your little baby girl's clothes, you say, oh, baby girl, this is your, this is your ethics, and this is your epistemology, and you zip her up, and you say, now they should match. <laughs> the old people told us, say ought to match do. And too often, 
like those who received James' letter, our say, what we say we believe and know about God, what we say he's revealed to us, and our do, how we obey God, do not match. We know that God has come to redeem a people for himself, but we keep redefining that people according to our own likeness, our own agendas, and our own priorities, our own stories. On a personal level, we say we're about the kingdom, but we spend more time sometimes indoctrinating people into our cultural or social or political position than we do discipling them into the ancient story. So in order for James to ask this Acts 8 community and us this question, does our say match our do? He's going to ask you first, which story are you following? Who's on the throne of your heart? And I think it's worth stopping to note here that in James' concern, in chapter one and two reveals something really incredible. In the midst of persecution, James's main concerns are doubt, complacency, hypocrisy, and idolatry more than the persecution itself. Let me say that again. In the midst of persecution, James feared doubt, hypocrisy, and idolatry more than persecution. Why? because he knows destruction from the inside of us destroys the community from the inside out and would do even greater damage to the body and the witness of Christ than those who could kill the body and not kill the soul. James wants us in the midst of anti-Christian hostility to fix our own stuff first. Sweep your own front doorstep was how the old people say, mind your own business. Put your house in order. Inner decay and destruction is harder to see than outer decay. Hypocrisy, cultural compromise, capitulation. They're a cancer that rots us from the inside out. So James takes us to the personal first. He's trying to get in our business. He's trying to get us together. And he says in James 1.19, Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why? After that beautiful discourse Mary just gave us, on wisdom unto life and destruction unto death. Why does James focus on what we say? Here again, he sounds like Jesus. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James is echoing the words of our Lord. The Lord said, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, can't get grapes from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of this evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke 6. Anger that's intended to cut and destroy and demean and hurt. Jesus proclaims that our words come from our hearts. Our problems with anger and our problems with our tongues are actually heart problems. 
And James has told us in 120 that man's anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God desires. Look at Cain and Abel from the earliest days. Two good church-going boys. One was in the choir, the other was on the usher board. The garden boys. Cain, anger, destruction, death. Energy flows where focus goes. And the life-giving force of Christ of the ancient story is a far more powerful force than death and destruction. If you are speaking death and destruction, if we are speaking death and destruction, words that set ourselves and others on a journey to death and destruction, we've strayed from the ancient story that brings life. And what does James say is the antidote What's the road back to the truthful, life-giving story? It's the story itself. It's the word of God. In verses 1, 20, 21 and 22, he says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And then he gives you say and do. Say ought to match do. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Your say ought to match your do. Our heart problem reveals who we revere and makes us say and act according to the desires and the stories it wants to tell. And we have trouble telling the difference between those false stories and the true one that we say we believe. And the hotter the culture gets around the body of Christ, and the more the polar extremities of cultural identities pull us and call us and force us to choose a side, the more that tension increases externally, the more we churn inside. Ooh, if we don't know which story we're following. And the more footholds those idols find to climb on us to plant their false stories in our hearts. And the more we... Those who profess Christ, the more we give in to them, the more damage we do to each other and to ourselves and to the world around us. And the less our say matches our due. So if our ethics is here, what we, how we obey God, and our epistemology is here, what God has revealed about himself, and what we say we know of him, if they have to match, then it's the ancient story that's the pull on the zipper. Our union with Christ makes us obedient to the one who has made sense of the world of the dead. He tells us who he is, and we react in obedience in all areas of life. And then we start to long to see others do the same, bringing life. James is writing about so much more than just keeping your word or not being angry. He's writing about the very identity of the church and her steadfastness under hostility. This is what's at stake. If you know who you are, you will endure. James tells us not to look at our own personal mirrors 
You know how we do in the mirror. You find that good angle. We know our angles, right? Not just on Instagram, but I mean, even in the mirror, we're like, yeah, that's the good one. Pull it in. We can bend and distort and form which way we want to see ourselves. Now, James says he wants you to look in the mirror of the soul, the word of God, because the word of God will not let you walk away and forget what you look like or think you look differently than you do. God wants to you to be conformed to one of his so much that he won't allow you to distort the image. And so he, James invites us into verses 23 to 25. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror and he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, say, match, do they will be blessed in what they do. The law of liberty was a radical concept. Law and liberty to Jewish ears? Those things, that's not supposed to go together. It set us free from bondage in the house of folly and destruction and opened the door into the house of liberty, the house of wisdom, the house of life. Come to the mirror of the soul that shows you not only as you are, but oh glory, it shows you as all that you are supposed to be. Beautiful. Redeemed. Steadfast, wise, discerning, kept, and one day glorified in his presence. The way to keep your tongue tame and your anger in check is to keep your heart clean. The heart is a revealer. Get right in your no and it will drive your do. Know the God of the ancient story. Know the story's contours. Study God's record. Study the stories of how it went for those who followed the ancient story in faithfulness and those who did not. And especially follow the stories of those in the biblical record who strayed after idols and yet found their way back. For surely, James tells us, mercy triumphs over judgment. And then James takes our internal look, our individual look, he takes it to the community because we don't sin in a vacuum. We don't live in a vacuum. The way we think affects the people around us. And he starts to talk about favoritism, partiality. You know, partiality is forbidden in God's economy, and there's a reason why. It's not only because it's morally wrong, but because it's based in idolatry. It doesn't belong. The church had a problem with idolatry that expressed itself in classism. The haves and the have-nots, and I'm going to get some mores. And James is going to strike at the heart of all of the isms 
through this one class issue. Because all of these isms that have plagued us since the garden that are found in idolatry, the religion of Cain versus the pure worship of Abel, idols exclude and they puff up as they push down. Contrast that against the pure worship that sacrifices and includes and lifts up. Read chapter 2, verse 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now you can imagine this picture. The people he's writing to in Acts 8 are a very diverse community, ethnically, linguistically. They got everybody up in there. Their problem wasn't ethnic issues. Their problem was class. Why? Because the folks who are following the ancient story are bringing in these other folks who are social outcasts and the religious with the heart and the anger and the tongue problem are seeing them come into the community and they're clutching their pearls and you know how we do. And those who are closer to the story of the people of God are coming into contact with those who are further away from its heart. And James tells us this story of a wealthy man getting the preferred seat in the assembly while the poor man is dishonored with the lowest spot in the house. We don't sin in a vacuum. Our personal sins become communal sins. Our idols don't let us sin in a vacuum. The false stories don't let us sin in a vacuum. Just as God is bent on maximum life and transformation, our idols are bent on maximum destruction and dehumanization, not just of those around us, but of our own souls. And so James says they are excluding and oppressing them in the world. This is how they behave out there. And here you are in the assembly of God's people acting just like the world. In other words, James is saying you're not acting according to the truthful ancient story. You're acting according to the false narrative of out there and you're doing it in God's house. None of our isms belong in God's house among God's people. And I think maybe at the foundation of what James is getting at here is that we don't need to repent of our partiality and our favoritism, as much as we need to repent for the idolatry that drives it. And if you know God, if you want your say to match your due, you know there is no partiality in him. He loves all of his own, and he welcomes all that he calls his own. James frames this in terms of class, rich and poor, in keeping with his earlier thoughts about the rich and poor being equal at the foot of the cross and in glory. But we love to make our isms. We love to make our little cabals. That's a funny word, isn't it? Our little clubs. And remove ourselves from others we think are less worthy than us. The people we don't like. We like to be judge, jury, and executioner over others in the church. Just like Cain and Abel in the garden. What is partiality anyway? It's judging and grouping people by creaturely standards and temporal loyalties. And this has been a problem for us since Genesis 3. Pro partiality requires that everybody be like me. Think like me, 
sound like me, walk like me. James is telling us that partiality among God's people is a stench in God's nostrils. Why? It's not just morally wrong. Partiality makes a mockery of the covenantal promise itself, part of which is our role to fulfill. Remember God's covenant promise to Abraham? The, the Great Commission is based on that. Jesus didn't just pull the Great Commission from out of this ahistorical place. He's like, by the way, guys, I think it'd be a really good idea if you uh, go and make disciples. No, that came all the way from the promise to Abraham. Genesis 17, 4, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. He has blessed them to be a blessing, mission and commission. And you know what? There are several restatements of the covenantal promise throughout scripture. You got to know the ancient story. Jeremiah 31, 33 says the covenant covers class two. Hot dog. He says from the least to the greatest, I will be your God and you will be my people a people not marked by partiality across ethnic, class, linguistic, or tribal lines. All God's own were created by Christ. All God's own fell in Adam. All God's own were promised in Abraham. All God's own are redeemed in Christ and all God's own are gathered in glory around his throne. Partiality is not a part of the body because it is not a part of God's character. It's not a part of his say. It's not a part of his will, not in this life or the next. Even Peter clues in on this in Acts 10.34. He opens his mouth and he says, truly, <laughs> Wait a minute, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Say, matching, do. Fear him, know him, and do what's right and acceptable to him. When we practice partiality and favoritism, we make false divisions according to earthly categories. And we prefer some over others for earthly external differences. And we are least like him in these moments in our say and our do. Because we forget that we're all poor and filthy. Filth is not just on us, it's in us. And showing no partiality, he entered into our poverty and he sat with us in our deadness and he invited us to his table and he dressed us in his clothes of righteousness and he bathed us in his love and he put us in his house. We are all the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, and the captive made free. How then can we turn around and do less do worse. The ultimate goal of the kingdom is not to welcome strangers into new social positions, although that's a good thing to do. The ultimate goal is to usher all poor to the table 
to the home, to the fulfillment of the covenant of Abraham, blessed to be a blessing to the nations. He's not shown partiality in the promise and he has not shown partiality in its fulfillment. And there are people around the world today living this out beautifully, just like there have been people for 2,000 years and more living it, where their say matches their due, living according to the ancient story. I tell my students all the time to watch this documentary called uh, Mully. Amazing story of Mully's Children Home in Kenya. Uh, they're living closer to the ancient story. Mully's Children Home, they've taken in thousands of orphans in this parallel community that indicts the brokenness and deadness of the orphan crisis in Kibera, Kenya. Or like single women I know in closed countries who take on the stigma as a single mom in order to rescue unwanted children. And a single mom in some cultures are considered morally bankrupt people. So these women stoop socially to save. You all know the name Corey Ten Boom, who brought life hiding people under the Nazis. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more adding to the ancient story as God builds his kingdom. Faithful saints are all over our historical records. How do we step into that line of people living closer to the ancient story? by sacrificially looking after those that the societies and the religious tend to overlook. You know, the religious, religious people have a lot of really big gaseous words about helping those who are overlooked by society, but it's, it's really often the people on the ground doing the actual work. And those who are far from the ancient story, they weep and gnash their teeth. Oh, not them, Lord. How can they go to those people outside our camp? Anybody but those people. <laughs> and you know what God says? God says, watch me build my kingdom in spite of your arrogance. God's mercy triumphs over the judgments we pronounce over others. For even those we exclude, he has included. Nothing can thwart his mercy. James tells us if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do this, you're doing well. Now note that James doesn't say, love your neighbor if he's like yourself or if he conforms to you and your group. The royal law is this, love your neighbor as yourself. How do we love ourselves without worshiping ourselves? The Bible tells us we're to think of ourselves with sober estimation. What's sober estimation? Simultaneously knowing who we are apart from Christ and knowing who we are in Christ. In Christ, we realize that we have both nothing and everything, nothing of ourselves and all of him. And James says, whoever fulfills the royal law, seeing his neighbor with this same two-sided lens, come into the ancient story. James says this person does well. Only the story of the kingdom of God will take us to the vision of Revelation 7-9. Only the story of the kingdom of God 
will cause our say to match our due. All people, all places, across all times, and from more categories than man can think of as and name, and then some, gathered around the name and blood and flesh of the resurrected Jesus Christ, his people, his called out chosen ones. This is the ancient story. False stories and idols always leave somebody out. Where God is no respecter of persons, idols are respecter of persons. They're like, I respect you, but I don't respect you. (laughs) My tribe, my knowledge, my way, be like me, worship me. That is their nature. They cannot take you to the end of the story in the grand picture we see in Revelation 7, 9. False stories demand the lives of others, those we exclude from God's kingdom invitation. False stories invite you in, but there's no transformation to wisdom, holiness, or Christ-likeness. In fact, they encourage you to stay foolish, live in Folly's house where her guests are the dead. Idols, False stories want us to build everything but the kingdom of God. All around the world today, it's not just here, all around the world, you'll hear lots of folks speaking from many different circles about joining one movement or another for identity, for purpose, for goals set out by earthly-based communities. Their voices are loud and they're enticing and sometimes around the world they're threatening and their pressure is strong. But the outcome of the ancient story doesn't rely on the success of any temporal or cultural movement or any earthly nation. A lot of people want to say it's counterculture. It's not counterculture. It's other culture. It's other culture altogether. It's not apolitical or anti-political. It's other political. It's a culture and politics based on the life, death, resurrection, and and glorification of Jesus Christ, not on earthly power. And on the surface, it seems like it's powerless and weak. Seems like it's not getting anything done, but actually it has the power to pull down dehumanizing strongholds. Ask Mully Family Children's Home. Ask Corey Ten Boom. Ask the saints who follow the ancient story. And then ask yourself, whose story are you following? James spends this passage telling us what happens when a member of the family of God follows a different story. And even now, I think Christ is calling many of us back to closer proximity to the ancient story. He was the only one who lived it perfectly. He is the ancient story. He's the author and finisher of our faith in the ancient story. But throughout history, there have been people who lived closer to it and people who named the name of Christ and lived further away. Their say didn't match their due. 
the people that God intended for himself, the ones he literally breathed into existence to be in his presence, the ones who existed before partiality and biting and devouring and idolatry and categories. This is the ancient line that's existed from the beginning of time and continues through history, through a line of now redeemed saints whose ethics and epistemology match better than others who professed Christ in history. Do we dare believe in this day of only criticism of the church from any side that there has always been a line of God's people despite our history books records of real-time flagrant offenses on one group or another? Do we dare to believe that a line of people living closer to the ancient story has always existed? Do we dare to believe that those people have passed the kingdom ball forward to us and others around the globe in this day and age to pass it forward well to the next generation? In order for our say to match our due, our idols have to fall. In order to join their line, we have to come back to the ancient story. And I'll tell you right now, you will not be liked or admired for confronting and tearing down your own idols. You will not be loved by the world for wanting to hug close to the ancient story that transforms us from destruction to life, from being under God's wrath to God's mercy. You will not be loved, but you will be free. You'll be truly free. The Spirit of God can reveal our idols far better than I can. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, ooh, you need to repent of this, you need to repent of that. Summon all your courage and then ask him, is there an area in my life where the Holy Spirit is whispering, my say doesn't match my do? Is there an area in my life where I've begun to deviate from the ancient story, the story that says God is keeping a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, nation in history, and that those who come to him, even if they hate him at the outset, they can be transformed away from foolishness and destruction to life? Is there even a hint of an idol taking hold of our hearts and our tongues and our minds and our lives that has nothing whatsoever to do with the hope and advance of the kingdom of God. Never mentions it, doesn't care for it, couldn't care less about it. Ask God to reveal it to you and then let him kill it. Come home to the ancient story. The times in which we live, globally and locally, are demanding that we choose this day whom we will serve. And I'll tell you, movements and counter-movements will come and go, but true will always outlast new. And there's something out there far better than tribes, earthly tribes, and more satisfying than the populist right and the progressive left. It's called the kingdom of God. Amen. It's the place 
where mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that the passage ends here. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphed over judgment in the garden when man and woman decided to be the arbiters of good and evil over others, and they should have been sent to die. But mercy triumphed over judgment. When we should have been left sleeping in our graves, dug by our sin and our rebellion, Jesus went to the cross and defeated our death and declared for all the world to see what James has written at the end of this passage, mercy triumphs over judgment. When Paul ravaged this Acts 8 community, murdering and pillaging and scattering and imprisoning the people of God, God called him by name and changed him, and mercy triumphed over judgment. And so it is with James's little Acts 8 community. They thought they could exclude those they considered undesirable or less than from the best of their assemblies. And God said, no, my mercy triumphs over your judgment. And it brought them joy. And it made them hungry to share that word and the story despite the consequences. And oh God, let it be this way with us. Mercy triumphs over justice. Dethrone your idols. Come back to the ancient story. God will direct you from there. I don't have a book to sell you. I can't monitor where you go and what you do after this conference. God will direct you from there. Yes, there is struggle in the ancient story. Yes, there is persecution and hardship and anti-Christian hostility, but there is also joy. Joy in the work of the kingdom and peace, knowing that your say matches your due, and that you live in the ancient story and in the very presence of God. Whose story are you following? Heavenly Father, when the church is so dead that it can do nothing but come to life, God, this is a good thing. This is your work. You're the potter, we're the clay. Help us confront our idols regularly so that our say matches our due. God, false stories are so sneaky. <laughs> Help us tear down our preference and our partiality and our comfort. Give us courage, God, to face this new season you've appointed for your purposes so that we can see many souls know that your great mercy triumphs over our petty judgment. Thank you, God, for your mercy. And we ask this in the matchless name of mercy himself the one whose say always matches his due. Jesus, the Christ, my Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.